children, we are forever asking the question, why? Yet, at some point, as we move into adulthood, the question gets easily answered with something similar to, just because. Why did we stop asking, why? Welcome to the Mickey Ellison Show, a program where we not only strive to answer those why questions, but we'll find out how to ask more and not settle for just because. Now, here's Mickey Ellison. Hello, and welcome to the Mickey Ellison Show. And I am really excited again today to have with me Whitney. Whitney Neal from Freedom Works. Whitney was on the show about uh, two weeks ago. If you actually want to go back and listen to that show, it aired on March 19th. We're talking Common Core. Common Core has been a big topic that has been discussed for quite some time within our schools, within my own kids' school. And um, it is a, it is something that we really need to delve into. So I invited Whitney back to talk more on the show. Whitney, are you there? I am. Excited to be back on the show. This is great. Yeah, Whitney, I saw on, on your Twitter feed not too long ago that you look like you're a big baseball fan. Yes, Is that I correct? am a big baseball fan. <laughs> and, and, Very and excited I'm a, for, a, for the season to be started. Yeah, and, and wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to deal with meddling politicians to, that impede on our life all the time, that we have to talk about common core and, and quantitative easing and all the the BS that that is thrown at us each and every day, and it never seems to stop. It would be nice to talk about opening day. It would be wonderful to talk about opening day and not have to worry about saving our kids from federal overreach in their classrooms. But uh, we're, you know, one of the things we were warned about for forever, actually, from our founders, that uh, um, politics has a tendency of attracting the scum of the earth. I don't think that's exactly how they put it. But uh, those that are seeking power and really want to want to have lots of power, well, politics is a great place to go if you can learn how to rule over other people. Is that not correct? I think so. You know, I, I find that there is a couple camps in politics, especially you know, I moved to D.C. from Texas in September of 2012. So I'm, I've been getting my feet wet here. And I find that, you know, there's a lot of me, me, me in politics. And, and you know, the, the government wasn't designed to have a bunch of me, me, me people just figuring out how they can get more money and more power and, and more prestige through the process. It was actually designed to be a very limited process, um, you know, where the people would have access to individuals that represented them. So uh, just being here in town, I see so many people where their mentality is, I'm here to see what I can accomplish for me, not for how I can ensure that liberty and individual freedoms are protected for the people. Yeah, it's funny that our founders that that uh, look at George Washington, and George Washington was a reluctant politician. He did he didn't want to do it, and uh, uh, today it, it seems to be the uh, one of the roads to 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 riches. But um, hey, we we talked Common Core a couple weeks ago when you're on the show, and I was I was so sad that the show ended so quickly. So let's start to dive into it. You actually sent uh, as far as the show description. Um, we're going to talk more about early childhood Common Core programs today, and um, you know the the you, there's four bullet points that says where it says the Obama administration's focus on preschool for all, what it means, what what it will cost, a history of early childhood programs. You got some stats that we can throw out there, and uh, why we should be concerned with with uh, this emphasis and especially the race to the top. So, yeah, you start where you want to start, and and we'll go from there. Well, I kind of think we can build upon our last discussion. So, you know, last time I was on, we talked about Common Core, specifically, um, you know, the standards introduced to the public for Race to the Top, but then also the, the tentacles that came along with it, all the other pieces of Race to the Top grants that were, you know, equally as detrimental as the standards themselves to the states who accepted the funding. 
And so, you know, we're looking at phase three, so race to the top three. Um, race to the tops one and two were common core standards to the states and the longitudinal data tracking. Phase three is really focused on early childhood education. And for people who uh, watch the State of the Union, in 2013, it was a huge portion of what President Obama talked about. And he talked about preschool for all, how his dream was to ensure that Every child in the country was part, um, beginning at age three, was part of an early childhood program. And he was really touting these successes um, in his mind of programs like Head Start and other things, and, and how important it was that every single child have access to one of these programs. Now, Whitney, on, know, the surface, Whitney on the surface, that, do, that doesn't sound so bad. We want to have opportunity for preschool for all. So why, exactly. why, should, that, why should that bother me? Well, I think there's two things here. You know, as a parent, when you have a child and they reach age three, um, you know, your first question probably isn't, man, I really need to make sure that they're enrolled in a government-funded preschool program. And, um, you know, you're not thinking those things. You know, three-year-olds, I mean, you and I both have kids. Three-year-olds are at very different maturity levels and cognitive ability levels. I think if you put ten three-year-olds in a room, they're going to all be in a different place. Some of them are already reading. Some of them aren't ready. So we're, we're looking at the government trying to fit our three-year-olds, you know, into a, a mold, into what they should, for the government, look like versus the creative beings that preschoolers are. And this is a time of curiosity and creativity, finger painting, and really discovering things. Not well, it, goes in line, it goes in line with the opening of my show where we, where we ask the, while we stop having these kids ask why. And it sounds like we're trying to start it, hit them at, as early as age three to stop asking why. Yes. We are. And, and I think, you know, when you look at the evolution of race to the top, and again, we've talked how smart they were to name it that because who doesn't want their child to race to the top? Um, you know, we're, we're looking at the government realizing step by step how they can get kids from as early of an age through as old of an age um, into some of these programs and into tracking them. And so we see, you know, this come through uh, in race to the top. It's called the early learning challenge is phase three. Um, okay. And so we've seen states that were um, last year, Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, New Jersey, and Vermont were all awarded um, multi-million dollar uh, grants. Um, these aren't just the states that applied. Obviously, they had 17 states apply, and those are the states that were awarded funds. But here's the thing. You know, when states apply for these grants, they often have to, as we saw with phases one and two, they have to adhere to the program even if they don't get the funding. And so uh, we see more states than just were awarded funding that are now attached to uh, to the standards and the programming. So is this a situation where some of the states, especially back in, in 2009 and 2010, were so desperate for, for any type of funding that they could get that uh, they basically um, had to, to sell out their citizens of their state to, to make sure their over-bloated blo- over um, state governments could, could continue to function? Is that that's how I'm reading that? Yeah, you know, I think states, they're concerned about their state budgets. And so, you know, when the government offers them money, they're like, great, you know, this is going to help us. We can move money from other places, apply it to other things. This is going to help fund what we do. What's really interesting, and if we want to kind of go in depth here, the White House actually on their website, um, there's two places I encourage people go to visit. The first is the Department of Education's Early Learning site. It's ed.gov slash early dash learning. That's ed.gov slash early dash learning. That's where you're going to see a full breakdown of this plan. But also, if you go to the White House website and you just search for fact sheet early education, 
an entire plethora of the vision and the planning for what this program looks like is available in black and white. And so I think that that's important for everyone to go and see what the president and what our Department of Education have proposed for us uh, through these programs, because they do, they spell it out exactly in black and white. Um, and, and so if you look there, it talks about the need to provide quality, high-quality you know, high preschool um, for every child. And, and, you know, within these, we've got um, evidence-based home visiting. We've got common core standards for preschoolers. Uh, you know, we've got a partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services. So once you dig down beneath the surface what sounds good, you come down and you see something and you're like, wait a minute, why would home visits need to be part of early childhood education? You know, why yeah, that do you actually need scares a- the crap out of me. Yeah, it should. I mean, I, I really think it should. And they call them voluntary home visits, and we can talk about that some more here shortly. But, um, you know, there's absolutely no reason for the Department of Education to need to partner with Health and Human Services for this early childhood initiative. If the goal is high-quality learning situations for kids, uh, so there, there needs to be a lot of questions asked as to why we even need this shared partnership, this shared information system. Uh, yeah, it, it it really does scare. I, I actually got distracted over here for a second, but uh, you know it it um it, it reminds me. Uh, heck, I don't even know what it reminds me of. But I get real leery when anyone is is calling for non uh, voluntary. You know, I played college baseball. If you didn't know that, and I recall when when uh, I was in college baseball that we had. Um, a, a certain number of weeks that we could actually practice with coaches there. And then we had weeks where we could, um, they called them voluntary practices where the coaches weren't there. Yes. And uh, it wasn't a good idea not to show up at those practices because the coach's office was across the street in the McGugan building at Vanderbilt University from from the baseball field. So uh, um, talk more about the... I don't know. Is there any detail on what they're trying to assess when they want to do these these at home visits? Uh, yeah, there's not out there. I've actually looked for you know what the criteria are. I'll read you, and 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 this is what I've been able to find. The the biggest it says expand the administration's evidence based home visiting initiative through which states are implementing, and then we've got the word voluntary programs that provide nurses, social workers, and other professionals to meet with at risk families in their homes and connect them to assistance that impacts a child's health, development, and ability to learn. Um, it says these programs are critical in improving maternal and child health outcomes in the early years. And so as you look at it um, and you kind of read into that deeper, here's the thing. When kids are deemed at risk, that's a label that's very broad. So if you're saying these home visits apply to kids that are labeled at risk, that can mean the child literally lives in a single-parent household. That single parent could make a lot of money and be a great parent, and that child could be in a wonderful environment. But because they've been tagged at risk because of that at-home situation, um, parents can be tagged at risk if they've ever had, you know, an arrest on their record and the kid has reported that to the school. They can be tagged. You know, this is, this is for many different things. A low socioeconomic status. Again, two wonderful parents, loving home. Parents are doing, you know, everything they can. Child can be tagged at at risk. And so if that's the criteria, we're saying we're going to send social workers, nurses, and then a very broad other professionals. That's scary. You know, I'd love to see them break down the actual criteria provided to local communities. That's like, this is how you can determine if your child needs a home visit, if a child does. Um, Because as we've seen with 
parents being attacked for homeschooling, you know, different situations where parents are asked, you know, they're not allowed to pick up their children from school. We saw last week the mom who was called to come pick up her child and then arrested for trespassing at the school building. You know, we, we, we see these stories all the time. Giving a blanket determination that an at-risk family can be eligible for home visit, that's, that's beyond me. Well, is there an interview process that goes through some, with some of these kids? Maybe, I, I don't know about starting out at age three, where, where they could find out something through probing on our kids through, and, and, and talking with them that would cause – and again, it, you kinda, it's kind of a, a – you're, you're, you're straddling a fence right here because you do want the kids to be open and, and tell you things that might actually be, cause them to be at risk. But at the same time, um, is, there, is there things like, for sake of example, it, Asking a kid, is, is there any fire, firearms in the home? Does that mean that they're an at-risk kid at that point in time? I mean, and it could. You know, we don't know because we haven't seen really good comprehensive criteria for these visits. Um, here's the other thing we know. Kids talk. I mean, I taught preschool, Sunday school. I taught eighth grade. They come to school. You hear all sorts of things. Um, you know, I would recommend kids, you know, if I heard kids talking or if I heard a concern situation, I'd be like, you know, maybe I want to talk to this kid and just ask if everything's okay. You know, but, you know, Teachers know when there's a serious situation going on for the most part. There's no need to, you know, probe children and survey them, you know, and, and really, you know, kind of provoke them to provide you the information that you're looking for. Because kids really do, you know, they're, they're pretty open and they talk and especially talk to one another. Um, as far as, you know, these, these top of the line issues. Obviously, we want programs in place where, where if a child is in a serious situation, that, that they can be helped and they can be taken care of. You know, a very serious situation. But I don't believe that the federal government is in the place to, to tell people that, you know, you need to have a, a health visit to talk about how to pack your child's lunch, um, you know, at the preschool level. You know, kids are picky eaters. We've got all sorts of things. And I think because we haven't seen comprehensive criteria here, we're, we're in big trouble for an overreaching program. Yeah, well, I, I have a seven-year-old who's going to be eight in a couple of weeks. That if I were forced to um, to to put some of the things into his lunch, because he takes his lunch to school every day, but if I were forced to put some of the things in in his lunch that are saying that, that he should eat, he should eat. I mean, he's okay with peanut butter and jelly every day. Yeah. Um, but if, if if I put those other things in his lunch, he's just not going to eat. And, I, uh, I agree, a hundred percent. My my son, he only likes peanut butter and jelly, and and so he does the same thing. I mean, he'll say, "I don't want that. I just want peanut butter and jelly." And so, you know, would they rather parents just not, you know, disregard the fact that the child needs to eat and send, you know, these federally required items, or would they prefer the children to actually eat something while they're at school? Yep. Well, we're coming up on a break, Whitney. Um, I'm, I have Whitney Neal, who is the uh, Director of Grassroots at FreedomWorks, on with us this week. We're going to delve more into early childhood Common Core programs and the cost and some other things when we get back from this break. See you in a minute. of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes and all they do to reduce the rate of premature birth in the United States. Though premature births have recently declined, 
Still, half a million babies are born too soon each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs that help moms and their babies live healthier lives. Please visit MarchofDimes.com and join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned to The Mickey Ellison Show. To connect with the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can drop Mickey an email to mickey at money-planning.com. Now back to the show. Well, good morning and welcome back to the Mickey Ellison Show. I am Mickey Ellison and I have with me today Whitney Neal, who was kind enough to be on Two out of three shows, and I think we could probably do an entire series. Whitney is the director of Grassroots at Freedom Works, and our conversation has been about Common Core for the two two times. If if you missed the show that she was on previously, it, it you can go to Voice America's website and look up the show that was aired on uh, March nineteenth, and you can listen to that as well. If if uh, some of the things we talk about um, are are building on that. When we went to the break, we had we had started talking about um, preschool for all, and you know, on here on, on the show description, since I put it on there, Whitney, we probably should cover a couple of these things. Um, we talked about what it means. There's also what it what it costs. You've got something on here about the the history of early childhood programs. Um, what what are the costs? What are we, what are we looking at as far as uh, um, cost to to us individually and, and states and, and the like? So it's it's pretty hefty. Um, if we look at the year 2015 budget proposal, um, just preschool for all. So the preschool for all program is 1.3 billion dollars in mandatory funds in 2015 alone, and that's part of a 10-year, 75 billion dollar federal spending commitment. So we're talking a huge chunk of funds for another federal program that affects local classrooms, and yet the local classrooms have no control over the situation. That means that taxpayers across the country are going to be paying to fund these federal 
preschool for all programs. Um, and and it, this includes Head Start, but it also includes um, child care providers, home care providers, school districts, and you know anyone that's providing a preschool services, a preschool service. And and within that commitment, states that participate are required to provide matching funds, which means that overall, between state and federal spending, you're looking at a 150 billion dollar commitment for the next 10 years. Holy cow! That's pretty hefty. Uh, In addition to that, we have preschool development grants, which is a $500 million commitment, um, basically to help local education agencies and local governments build these programs uh, for places where they don't exist. So just a significant financial burden on this country to help fund them. Well, you know, it it just drives me crazy when we're having um, half a trillion and trillion dollar deficits each and every year. Where the heck are we coming up with, with an extra... $150 $150 billion that I, I guess um, Janet Yellen can just print us some more money or we can borrow it from our great-grandkids so that uh, they, they get to pay back an amount of money that they never volunteered to get to do. It, it just exactly. is absolutely it, – it is, it is asinine of, of what we're doing. And does it take absolute collapse of the U- U.S. economy for people to wake up? And, well, and realize you can't borrow. Can you not? You can't borrow to infinity. You can't do that. I don't care what. Oh, what's his name? Uh, the the economist from from Harvard that got so famous a few years ago. Um, oh, heck, I shouldn't say that when I don't can't remember his name. But uh, you know, it, I I know that folks will say debt and deficits don't matter, but they don't matter until they do. And um, let, let's let's stay on on topic, uh, Whitney. Let, what are what are some other areas that, that we need to be concerned about? Well, on this cost thing, I think it's really interesting when the president, you know, both at whitehouse.gov, again, at the Department of Education, they actually suggest ways that states can help fund these programs. They're very, you know, very helpful. And they suggest raising sales taxes. And they actually provide a list of items that states can raise sales taxes on to help fund these early childhood programs because they admit, hey, you know what, this is, this is a one-time commitment for a lifetime program. So we'll give you this money up front, but then you guys are going to have to figure out how to pay for it. And, you know, that's going to come at out, again, at the bottom dollar of the taxpayer and raising sales taxes on items that have nothing to do with this situation to help fund a program that many of these places don't want to participate in. And you're going to find parents that they don't want their child in these government-funded preschool programs. They want to send their child to private school or they're choosing to educate their child at home. And they're still going to pay out of pocket for these, you know, these costs while sure. also spending their own personal money for their child's education. Well, so, and they're already you know, doing that. They're already doing that to an extent because if I decide to send my kids to a private school, I'm still going to have to pay the property taxes in the state of Kansas and whatever other taxes are there to uh, to pay for other kids to go to school. And it's not that I don't want to help other kids go to school, but uh, you know, there there is the voucher programs that people have talked about. I don't know a whole lot uh, about it because I don't have we don't have that option here, but it, it just yeah. You know, one thing I wish everyone would start to learn is when you hear the government say anything about investments, think taxes. That's because yep. that's the only way they can get it or borrow, yes. it, which means taxes for somebody later. It does. It means taxes. It means we're going to spend now and, and ask for forgiveness later. We're going to say, oops, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, by the way, you're still paying back for your preschool when you're 80 years old. Um, you know, it, well, it, heck, we're doing that to our, we're doing that to our college students today. We're saying, hey, you need to you need to go borrow a hundred thousand dollars because you have to have a college education, even though you don't have a clue what you want to do for a living because you're only eighteen years old. 
Right. And again, I'm not against college education. I have a college education, but good heavens, don't send your kids out there getting a hundred thousand dollars in debt in a debt that they cannot write off if they ever do try to file bankruptcy. Um, that that uh, it's just it it's it's immoral. But Whitney, that's the only thing I can think of with some of this stuff. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the history of early childhood, um, early childhood programs. You, you've got something on there. What, are, what history do we need to know about? Well, I think we need to look at the history of federal involvement in education first and kind of take it from there. Um, you know, we, we look back at when the Department of Education was created, and it's in the late 70s. I believe it was under the Carter administration. And they were created to be a small organization kind of advising the federal government on patterns in education, you know, where where things are headed, where the need areas were, more of an advisory role as these you know as many of these large bureaucracies were originally created to do. Yeah, and so we went good from intentions, very, right? Yeah, you know, from a very small, close group of people now to a massive federal bureaucracy with I believe it's like a seventy billion dollar budget uh, every year, and so you know we we've seen the the department expand. Well, as departments expand, they have to legitimize their role. You know, they have to start saying, well, we need to play a role in this. We need to do this. We need to be involved here. Oops, there's this magical need area. We need to hire these people to help, you know, to help fix this at the state level. So the the bureaucracy grows and grows and grows because they're trying to continually legitimize uh, the budget increases that they want. Interesting thing about the department, I believe it's actually only 11 cents out of every dollar spent returns to a classroom. Uh, the rest of it is spent internally funding other Department of Edu- Education programs, benefits, salaries, overhead costs of the building, that kind of thing. So when, when they're legitimizing their role, a lot of it is coming up with these great programs that are dumped on the states, and then they have to figure out how to implement them. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, we see a fairly new federal department, and when you look at the grand scheme of things, trying to figure out ways that they can, you know, be in all, involved um, in in the education process. So early childhood is, is one of those things. And we consider early childhood everything from pre-K, which is about three years old, so three years old, up through the early early grades in elementary school. So kind of K-1, K-1-2 in some places. All of that is thought of as part of a child's early childhood education. And so, well, that, you know, we, that makes that makes sense that some of the focus is there because I have a second grader that, as we talked on the previous show, is I'm seeing much more of the the talk about Common Core in in his classrooms and when we go when we go do parent teacher conferences that I am with my seventh grader. Yes. And and I, I guess that that's where where you're going with that, right? Um, that is. And and that I, I you know if if we're if we're looking to. Uh, um, to indoctrinate, um, and that's the word that I use it, with someone that has a uh, an ulterior motive. The earlier you start, the the easier it is to prevent um, critical thinking within these kids to ask the question that I say at the beginning of every show to ask why. Yes. The, the earlier you can teach these kids that the person who's going to provide you all your answers is the government or you know the bureaucratic system that they're closest to, the less often a kid is going to think they need to ask why. They're just going to wait for someone to tell them what their next move is. And so yeah, you're we're right, creating the earlier robots. You, yes. The earlier you snag kids, the, the more likely the outcome is going to be what the government wants. And so you look at 
everyone touts Head Start. And I will say this. I know a lot of great teachers and great individuals that are involved in, in, in teaching Head Start programs. And there are children that the environment of Head Start is good for. So I want people to start this out. So I'm not saying early childhood education is bad. I absolutely think that there are kids that benefit from being in these programs. But overall, the government funding a program like this and spending that kind of money, I want to know then that there are some great results that we're talking. These kids are like, you know, skyrocketing to success. In uh, December of 2012, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, released the latest round of Head Start data. And that's the last study that I've seen um, released by Health and Human Services. So this is their own internal numbers of their own program. Um, It was released right before Christmas that year. So, of course, people aren't thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to check out this data. Um, And so they they looked at it. And, And both in 2010 and 2012, when the data came out, the outcome was the same. It had no impact on academic outcomes and little to no impact on all of the other measures of well-being. And Heritage, the Heritage Foundation, they did a great study breaking this stuff down. Um, you, you look at Head Start. Of the 11 measures of cognitive ability, reading, language, math ability, access to a Head Start program made no difference for three- and four-year-old children on any of the outcomes, any of them. Um, the social-emotional development of the 19 measures for of, of children that um, we're looking at. And other things like aggressive behavior, hyperactive behavior, conduct problems. Some people believe that Head Start programs help solve those problems before a kid gets to the general public school. They saw a very slight benefit in social skills and positive approaches to learning, but no impact on any of the other 19 measures. Um, again, on, on child health outcomes of the five-minute measures, it made no difference for either group, group kids that were in or were not in a Head Start program. And of the 10 measures of parental outcomes, because one of the parts of being in these programs, of course, is the influence on a parent's ability to parent their child, was one out of 10 benefits, uh, or one out of the 10 measures actually saw a benefit. So we've seen a program that's been around for 50 years. The, the purpose of 50 years, we see repeated fraud. We've spent more than $180 billion to fund it, and we're seeing no benefit. So why would the federal government then double down on a program and a a situation that already isn't showing enough benefit for the current level of investment? It just, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah, it is absurd, and it, it makes it makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, what scares me in that deal where you're, where you're just talking about um, the attention and stuff like that is it gives them an idea of which kids need to be um, medicated as they get a little bit older. Exactly. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I will take my kid out of school before you start medicating my school. And I have a very active, very, very active seven to eight, actually almost eight-year-old, and uh, but is, is very, very very smart. Now, he does tend to act a little better at school than he does with me. I don't know. Do your kids do that? Oh, yeah. I, what is that? Well, I, I'm, <laughs> we're the one that we, we pay for your food, we clothe you, but you would never talk to your teacher the way that you talk to one of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, they. I, I've said to um, a couple people, I think he just behaves better when I'm not around in general, even at soccer. You know, if I have to drop him off at soccer practice and, and I come I come back, like, oh, he's just wonderful. And I'm looking at him like, who are you? <laughs> so, like, did I drop off the right kid? Because... <laughs> but, but, you know, going back to, you said something in the first segment, Whitney, about 
uh, about uh, the kids being at different at different levels and as cognitively and, and emotionally and in maturity levels. I see that in coaching a a my young, I coach both boys teams, um, but our my eight year olds teams. There's a huge difference between the kids on the team, and they're eight, and, and it's just. It, and you have to do it individually with each one of the kids, or otherwise, there are kids that uh, um, they're just there's some kids that are just more capable at this point of doing something that other kids aren't. It doesn't mean that the other kids are not going to catch up. In fact, I've seen so many times in my let's see, I'm 42, so I've been in sports since I was two, probably. So, 40 years of sports, I've seen so many times where the one kid that you thought wasn't going to be any good is the one that winds up playing in the big leagues. Yep. Well, and, you know, uh, I taught eighth grade, and I would, you know, we, we keep hearing this college and career-ready jargon thrown around, rigor. Are you, we have to have college and career-readiness standards. What does it mean to be college and career-ready at a certain age? You know, no one defines that. We just say, well, we need to test them and get a score, and we need to use these words in the classroom. I had kids in the eighth grade say, well, I'm probably not going to go to college. I'm not very smart. Because we've taught these kids that there's this arbitrary description of being college and career ready and you need to be ready at 18 and we're going to send you off to an Ivy League school and darn well you better be successful. And like you just said, kids are different. They have different passions, they have different dreams, they grow and mature at different times. Why are we setting one bar of expectation when we know we've got different levels for every single person in the room. You know, and, and I think that's when you start doing that at age three, wow, <laughs> that's pretty yeah. scary. We're, we're going to now be funding a program on top of another program that doesn't work. It's kind of like Obamacare on top of Medicare and Medicaid, one corrupt and out-of-control program, you know, padded with another. Um, so we're going to have preschool for all on top of Head Start, spend all this extra money. And by the way, part of the program is state-level common standards for early learning, uh, revised teacher qualifications for classrooms, and implementing a comprehensive data and assessment system, assessment systems for our three- and four-year-olds in the classroom for standards. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing our kindergartners, first- and second-graders come home crying because of Common Core math. I can't imagine what that does to the psyche of a three- and four-year-old to have uh, these set standards for common, you know, common curriculum in the classroom. Yeah, my Jackson comes home has come home a few times, and and he'll have a math pro a math problem that he has done. It is correct, but yet he doesn't understand. Dad, why didn't I get a hundred percent for that? Isn't the answer right? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and yeah, and it and sometimes he'll come home with partial credit for it when he got the answer wrong. And it, you know, I understand that there's a there's processes that you have to go when you get to higher levels of math. And and if you don't understand the process, you can't find where the mistake is. But when we're doing eight plus eight, we just need to know that's sixteen. That's all we exactly. need to know. Whitney, we're coming close to a to another break. Um, I. I, I, I advise you guys to, to go back. What was it? ed.gov early. Yes. Back, go to these websites. Say them again real quick. So you can go to whitehouse.gov and just search early learning, and that will pull up everything. Or if you okay. go to ed.gov slash early dash learning, you'll see everything they put out there in black and white about these programs. All righty. We've got to go to a break. We'll see you guys in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned to The Mickey Ellison Show. To connect with the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can drop Mickey an email to mickey at money-planning.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the Mickey Ellison Show. I am Mickey Ellison with uh, Whitney Neal, the director of uh, Grassroots at FreedomWorks today. We're talking Common Core and um, I had a good friend of mine, uh, Whitney, a couple uh, right after we did that show. Actually, I, I think he listened to it on demand. But he brought me some a couple of uh, a CD where he had he had uh, taped. I guess that's giving my age. Where he had he had recorded some shows with some other people talking. And you know, I I don't think that the biggest majority of us are against having some type of standards as far as what you should be able to do and what you shouldn't be able to do to to move on to this, that, or the other. But it just i don't know why I, I guess it's because of indoctrination of of uh from public schools and from the government running our schools for so much time why um why folks aren't more afraid of uh of a national type push from 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 a very high level top top down type of approach i guess we haven't had the the um we, we haven't lived through a time where we've really seen tyrannical governments and that sort of thing. But I, I think the more local – for one, is control. You're having control from, from top levels, whereas where we can have the most accountability and control is at the local level because, because the people that, we, that are putting the standards on us are people that live in our neighborhood. Am I wrong in that? 
No, you're not wrong at all. Uh, but what what should we cover? This is our last segment of the show. So is there anything that we need to hit that we haven't hit so far? Well, I kind of want to play a little devil's advocate with people because I agree with you. You know, the concept of standards are not a bad thing. The, the, the idea that we would have some, you know, way to measure, you know, student progress. Um, I want to ask people, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, but why wouldn't we want access to early childhood programs for those that want them? Why wouldn't we want a level of, you know, rigor, a level, a standard for people to meet? Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that standards at the state level and standards set by non-government organizations that are experts in academic fields that people can use as guides in state and local classrooms are, are a great idea. And I think giving states options of, you know, of tests and, and states being able to choose between those options is great. Um, but let's look at the implementation. So let's say you think, well, look, I think that early childhood programs are wonderful. I think they work. I think standards are great. If you look at it from the implementation aspect and you say to yourself, okay, this is the federal government and they're going to go implement a program that's based on touching individual students in local classrooms, how do we think this is going to work? Well, even the National Teachers Union, who we, we typically never, ever side with the teachers unions on an issue, but on, on programs like this, we do. They've even compared the implementation of Common Core and said it's worse than the implementation of Obamacare. Because, again, the federal government is a bureaucracy that doesn't understand, and they're not in a classroom, they don't understand how to implement these programs at the local level. And so we've seen teachers quit because of Common Core. We've seen, you know, parents and school boards and people having protests because Common Core wasn't transparently provided to the states. It wasn't transparently explained to the parents. And teachers were given little to no time to adjust from what they were teaching under their old system to what they're teaching under the new system. And so we threw these guys in a classroom and said, hey, we know you've done this other system, but magically you're supposed to be an expert at this new system, and we're going to flip a switch and, and force your children to follow this new system this new school year. So if your son last year in third grade was under a set of standards, let's say under those standards, long division was a requirement by the end of third grade. Okay. But under the new standards, long division is a requirement at the end of second grade. You have a year of second graders moving up to third grade where the new standards and the new curriculum assume they already know how to do long division because you didn't put a transition period in there. Uh So you've lost a year of teaching. You've lost a year of your mathematical education because the new standards expect you to go another grade level above long division. And the teacher is magically supposed to, in the classroom, make up for the year lost plus the new year before kids take that assessment. And those teachers are now measured by student performance on those assessments. None of that makes sense. So even if you think standards are great, this system is absolutely backwards. Well, if you're going to start with, with a system like that, rather than dumping it right into the school system, wouldn't you at least start it with the first, you know, we've got our first group of kids coming in in first grade this year. So right. we're going to start them on this track, not taking my second grader, my kid is going to be a second grader that's assumed to, that he knows these the long division. Um, maybe if you started working on that in first grade, you might be able to do it. I, I don't really agree with that. Uh, I'm not really for I I can't even talk about it because I don't. I don't. Um, I really have a hard time with the federal government being involved in much of anything. But you know what I would look at from an individual school type standpoint, where if you're going to have a in a local area, a school is going to offer this program for three year olds, but they require these are the standards you must meet to get into to this school, and, and rather than 
we're going to put this whole program together and expect, as you said earlier, there are kids that are cognitively not ready to be in, in one situation, whereas other kids are. That way, at least the parents and the schools are deciding based off of uh, the, the individual kids who's ready for what. Exactly. And that's what would make sense, right? I mean, we're, we're talking here, the goal is to educate the individual child. You know, when a teacher comes into a classroom, she sees 28 different faces, 28 different learning styles. It's really hard to tell that teacher, by the way, all these kids have to do the same thing on the same day. They're going to be measured by the same standard, and, you know, they have to do this one process. We're talking about that from the Common Core perspective. Let's take it back to early childhood, our topic today. It specifically says in the proposal they want state-level standards for early learning for these kiddos with, with these assessment systems. And here's the key, the comprehensive data systems. And we talked about this data last time when, that I was on the show, these databases uh-huh. that are going to track child information. That starts at three years old now, and the goal is P20, which is the workforce, you know, pre preschool through college and then into the workforce. They're incentivizing preschools now. They've already got public schools. And now we're going to have public universities tracking all of this data and information. And so if the goal at the end of the day is for our children to be data points on a graph and pieces of data in a computer database, I think we've seen what the vision for this program is, you know, altogether. It's not about Head Start. It's not about access to these programs. It's really about how much can we take uh, from these programs and input into the system so we can start doing predictive learning and, and different things and we can start tracking well, this information. And we, we treat we treat these kids like spokes in a wheel that, that we're going to, this kid should go this direction, this kid should go this direction, this kid should go this direction, and we want to figure out what that direction is as early as we can when a lot of kids, they they – they don't even. When I was 18 years old, heck, when I I still don't even know what I want to be when I grow up. So yeah. it, it's almost like we're we're trying to set this this um, top down um, government run system so that we have the economy that the these people want us to have because now we've got the pieces to fill into each one of those spots. And to me, it sounds like a a end around way of creating a more socialist society. Yeah, and, and here's the other thing. You know, one of the things you probably hear, and I do all the time, is what about kids from, from low socioeconomic backgrounds? What about those schools that are failing? Uh, here's something interesting to tell you, and a lot of people don't want to talk about this. Both the Department of Education and um, the White House, in their proposals, their presentations, and how they put this together, have determined that Title I funding, and Title I is um, under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. It's fundings that provide to schools that have high percentages of children from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, these are for things like after-school programs, reading programs, supplemental programs for kids that really are academically struggling. Mm-hmm. Those funds are now tied to participation in these Common Core programs, even if you aren't part of the Race to the Top or Common Core. So a state like Texas, a state like Virginia, a state like um, Alaska that didn't take Race to the Top money they're now going to lose, according to these proposals, in 2015 access to their Title I funding if they don't participate in an assessment system. So, again, we're looking at data and assessments. What's the end goal here? That's part of Common Core, a common so set of standards shared between the states. Now, that's evil in and of itself. You're using these kids who are in, in low socioeconomic situations are really that are really struggling. You're using them as the bargaining chip as to whether yep. we can get money to go another. That's just that's that's evil. 
It's evil, it's despicable, and no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to say, wait a minute, we're using the kids that we're supposedly trying to reach through these programs as our bargaining chips to rope the states in to what we want them to do. We, we've, we treat kids like cogs in a wheel, like you said, like data points on a graph, and now, I mean, we talked about this last time, we call them human capital in these documents. Now they're our bargaining chips. You want your money to help these kids? You've got to do what we tell you to do. Um, and, and I taught at a Title I school. I can tell you how frightening it would be for an administrator because we know that the federal government, they're very picky with how they fund programs. They tell schools exactly how they can use their money. Schools don't have a lot of flexibility, uh, you know, with how they spend their funding, and that's a topic for another day, public school finance and all of that stuff. These well, are funding right now these schools need. I see opportunity at the local level in, in, in that as well. It's because, you know what, if, if, I hope Texas never gives in to, to getting this stuff, to becoming, um, letting them bribe them into getting this money. Because if there's no one that loves their kids more than the parents of those kids, and if, if they knew the need, and I, I think in areas like, like Wichita and parts of Texas, that the people within the churches, within the neighborhoods, within those local communities will do what's necessary to help take care of those the, those kids. So, uh, But it's just a matter of waking up and saying, you know what? We don't need your federal funding. We're going to go in here, and we're going to take care of the kids just like we're supposed to. Yep. So there, there's – go ahead. That's the, that's the opportune solution, right? I mean, what all of us are fighting for is local control and involvement in our public schools. And the more that they're bribed to participate in programs like this, the more we're all locked out of the equation, the more we're all prevented from really using those common-sense solutions at the local level that we have the ability to handle and to do. And I, I, I encourage people to really see how deeply they can get involved at the local level and prevent their state and their schools from continuing participation in these programs. Well, it's amazing to me that there's there's so many people within the Department of Education and, and in politics in general that will will really knock homeschooling. When in the end, isn't the isn't the thing we're supposed to be doing educating the kids? And if they're coming out of homeschool just as well prepared, if not better, than they would be in a in a public school, what's wrong with that? I mean, there we have our founders who I think were extremely extremely wise people. They they managed to become educated, a lot of it self-educated, without a public school system, and they created what is now the greatest country in the history of the earth. Yep. So you know, we, We've seen our model work, and, and you know, yes, I, I think we both agree there needs to be public school reform, but public school reform isn't because the localities aren't doing their job. It's because the federal government has been preventing them from doing it. Because so we've seen the federal government's influence grow, we've seen the performance um, and the ability of teachers to problem solve in the classroom, we've seen it drop. So I think, you know, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. The local solution is the best solution. Parents should be able to choose what's best for them. Where, where they know their children, they can see if their child is progressing, if they're making improvement, if they've, you know, really gotten passionate about education. Not, not a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. And we only have a couple minutes left, but it does. It reminds it reminds me of the the situation in New York City where those kids were really starting to to do so much better. What was it? A voucher program that that they were working with? They could actually pick where they were going to school, and and the new mayor decided to make that uh, to, to get rid of that program. What was that called? Um. So yeah, they have the New York uh, program. They have a voucher program there. Where parents and 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 children had to meet a certain criteria. Basically, and we got we got to, about a minute. Okay, so they had to meet some certain criteria to get to go to a school that would meet their needs. Unfortunately, 
that really threatens, um, you know, the government-run schools. They don't like that. They don't like the idea that kids are going to be able to pick a better option because the money then leaves that school and goes to the competitive school. So, again, we're looking at what's more important. Is it student performance or is it where the money goes? Um, you know, we're looking at the emphasis on money, not on student achievement. Well, I think that's what we can look at in most situations. When we look at, at uh, who's going to be collecting the data, um, who's who's getting to do all, make all the tests, like we talked on the last show. Who's who's creating gets the 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 no bid contract for for the books or whatever it might be. And, and I think in the end, what we really need to do is is always, 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 no matter what it is, when government's involved, follow the money. Whitney, we've got to go in, in just a minute. Is um, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Again, it's one. It's a it's a topic that we could hit and talk about for, for for hours upon hours. But Whitney Neal was with me this week. Whitney, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, you can go to the website in any time to to listen to the previous show that was aired on March seventeenth, I believe it was, or was it uh, uh, March eighteenth? I don't remember. But if you go back, you can listen to it March nineteenth. Go listen to that show, Whitney. Thanks again for being on the show, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. so much for joining us on the Mickey Ellison Show. Mickey plans to be here again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We hope you'll be here too.